This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Professor Michael Helfen. Professor Helfen's articles on religious laws, customs, and practice have appeared in dozens of law reviews, pretty much everyone I've heard of, as well as numerous popular publications. Moreover, he serves as an arbitrator and a consultant for the Beit Din of America. He has an undergraduate degree from Yeshiva University, a law degree from Yale, and a PhD from Yale as well. Michael, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Great to be here. So your chosen passage is actually not from the Tanakh, but from the Talmud. So tell us uh, what happens in your chosen passage. Where is it in the Talmud and why is it significant to you? So the passage comes from the end of Tractate uh, Sota. You know, it's kind of they saved the surprise ending for the uh, surprise ending. Just to keep you reading through. It's a funny passage. It's a passage about it's supposed to be about Greek wisdom and the prohibition, at least at some time, to um, study Greek wisdom. But the passage takes a little bit of a turn. You think it's prohibited. The Talmud thinks, wait a minute, we think we have some precedent that it's permitted to engage in this study. And then the Talmud says, no, 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 we'll tell you when you're allowed to engage in this kind of behavior of studying Greek wisdom. It's when you are karov le malchut, close to the king or close to the monarchy. And it really ends up being a passage that helped, that identifies you know, the way in which there are different expectations of people to behave and speak when they're close to the monarchy, when they're um, you know, in positions of political import. And uh, I actually find that interesting. So um, what are those uh, conditions or customs? Well, so the, the Talmud goes through a couple of things that you know, people were allowed to do because they were in positions of political import. Like they could have their hair cut in a particular way. Later authorities talk about how they could dress in a particular way. There are certain different kinds of things you studied. You know, you just looked, acted, and sounded different. That was the expectation if you were close to the monarchy. And, the, you know, the big question is obviously why. Like, why would that be an exception? Yes, exactly. That's what I was going to ask. So what you're saying is even in the Talmudic times, if one had a job that made him an advisor to the secular or Gentile ruler, he was able to deviate from the traditional Jewish methods of dress and maybe some other things as well. Yeah, that's right. You know, normally those things are like um, Jews behave in a particular way, act in a particular way, speak in a particular way, because we're supposed to represent values in every which way possible. We kind of wear our values almost literally on our sleeve. Um, but here, this set of people were allowed to, to make exceptions to these rules. And, you know, some commentators take it as the following. They take it as, listen, if you're, if you're close to political power, we understand that there's a need to kind of cover your identity, to hide who you are. And that's really an interesting thing to me. That sounds to me like if you said to me, what's one thing a Jew, no matter how secular or how observant, can't do, I would say, well, of course, the Jew shouldn't hide who he is. Every Jew should be a proud Jew. And uh, regardless of how he wants to express or even define his Judaism, he should be a proud Jew. Yeah, I think I'm with you. You know, I think when we say that, you know, we take it for granted, like we in the 21st century have the ability as Jews to be proud Jews. And, you know, this passage is a reminder of our history, that there was a time, time of the Talmud, you know, somebody who was close to power had a, had a job to do. 
Rabbi Yosef Cairo uh, interprets the passage to say that, you know, here's the problem. If you were a court Jew, for lack of a better term, you had to cover who you were because sometimes the stakes were so high. You didn't want people to know who you were. You had to save people's lives. You had to make sure that Jews weren't killed. Interesting. So, so is that basically the reason that, that obviously the highest principle in Judaism is saving a life, right? And, you know, as the chairman of United Hatzalah, people sometimes say, well, the volunteers violate Shabbat to save a life. I said, they won't violate Shabbat to save a life. They'll honor Shabbat to save a life. Is that basically what he's saying is that you're actually living up to the, the highest methods of observance by dressing like a Gentile or whoever, or whoever you have to in order, like Esther and Mordecai, to save the Jew? I, I think that's right. I think ultimately it's a reminder that when you were close to political power back in the time of the Talmud, the stakes were so high that you had to do anything you could to, even if it meant hiding who you were, covering your identity, as you said, like Mordecai and Esther, in order to make sure you make sure you could save Jewish lives. And it's also a reminder that the 21st century doesn't really look like the fourth century, which is something that I said, I think, I think we take for granted that we get to walk around, we walk around in a particular way, we advocate in a particular way, we make claims on society in a particular way without hiding who we are. That's not how we always lived. And to me, you know, that's why I like this passage. It's a reminder of where we come from. And, you know, the advantages and the opportunities and the responsibilities of being a 21st century Jew. That's right. And I, I think it's, it's so important for the idea of Jewish peoplehood that we always remember that the incredible privileges that we enjoy and experience now as Jews is a historical anomaly. And for instance, you know, in, in my forthcoming book on the, Haggadah, on the Haggadah, there are several passages where we acknowledge that we will always has, have enemies and that there are enemies now. And sometimes people omit them from the Haggadah. And I'm saying, no, no, no. If you're omitting from the Haggadah, it's just a function of your very fortunate circumstance now. But historically, to be a Jew was often to be in terror or to be insecure. And to realize that is also to acknowledge and appreciate what we have now. Yeah. And I'd also say it's not just like an opportunity. I think there are responsibilities that come with it. You know, again, back in the day, we hid who, we did whatever we had to do to get through the day in many ways. You know, if it meant having our hair look a particular way, speaking a particular way, looking a particular way, whatever it was, that's what we did. Now we get to advocate and speak and articulate values. And that means because we can, it means that sometimes we should, that we don't have to be shy. Um, we don't have to hide. We have an opportunity to speak. And, and when, you, when you're given that opportunity, it means you have the opportunity to speak based on your values, to show who you really are. That means they're thinking, you know, we've got work to do. That's right. During a significant portion of time in the Middle Ages, we used uh, white wine on Pesach, on Passover, to send the message that we are not drinking the blood of your children. Because that was the blood libel at the time, was that the red wine was the blood of Christian children they were drinking on Passover. And so we actually used white wine. Just, I mean, this is Jewish history. This is much of the Jewish experience, which is so completely different in just about every respect as it is today. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, what it does, you know, and again, why I select this passage is it's a reminder that we have to set the agenda for 21st century jury based on a very different set of facts and a different set of opportunities and a different set of responsibilities. You know, I, I think about the fact that I walk around, I get to walk around with a yarmulke on my head and actually wear my tzitzit out. Like, you know, when you see me, you're not like, I wonder if he's Jewish. Um, there's no confusion about me. I don't take that for granted. And I think in the way we dress, the way we speak, the way we act, and the way we argue, advocate, press for things, um, advance our interests, advance the interests of the world. 
we can do it from a place of values, of real deep Jewish values, which is not not how we used to roll. But I, I also uh, think your point about the obligations this confers is very important in the sense that we now have a special obligation to become better students of Judaism and to to really know our tradition, to know our text, to know the sacred Torah, which we were given, because there's nothing stopping us. So our ancestors fought through everything we can conceive and plenty we can't even conceive in order to get us to this place where we are now that they couldn't even imagine. And that gives us an obligation and a responsibility to to really study, learn, and then, as you say, act accordingly. Yeah, and I think about, you know, I have a legal background. I think you have legal background also. I failed the bar. You, you I presume, passed the bar. Well, yeah, I mean, oh, I probably shouldn't say things about Yale Law School and the low pass rate of the bar, right? Is that a, not something? No, I think the pass rate's very high. I think I was the only person in the class to fail it. Class of 98. You're much younger. I'm going to tell you that you're, you're, you're far from alone. <laughs> <laughs> I think about like, you know, the cases that I deal with or the things that I argue about that I can argue about what a, the Jewish interest in a case is based on Jewish values, that when I write something for a periodical, like, and I want to think about what the Jewish take on a particular Supreme Court case is, I get to do it from a place of Jewish values. I get to think about what my history is, what my interests are, and I speak them aloud. And what your Torah says. Exactly. All of that. And kind of the weaving together of Torah and history and contemporary interests and deep-seated values. I think that's important. And I think um, I relish the opportunity. Again, it's why I picked the passage. It reminds me that being a 21st century Jew is such a special opportunity and something to take advantage of. Absolutely. So I'm fascinated by the Beit Din, which which you serve on, you continue to serve on a Beit Din? I serve periodically. It's hard to get me out there. Most of the cases are in New York. Why? Just because that's where the bulk of the Jewish community is in, in New York that's, that cares about such things? Well, I would say that the Beit Din I work with, I'm a New York Jew originally, so kind of moved out here 10 years ago. So Beit Din, of course, is a traditional Jewish court, right? That's right. And it still exists today, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, tons of them all over uh, the United States, all over the world. They're Oh, they're ubiquitous. Okay, so how busy are they? Like how many litigants and what kind of litigants will go before Beit Din? Let's talk pre-corona. Um, we had a little bit of a lull, but I'd say at the Beth Din of America, you know, the average number of commercial cases you'd have a year is about 115, give or take. And a number of, you uh, separately, not commercial cases, but you have divorce cases, um, 350, give or take. Uh, numbers off the top of my head, um, just to give you a sense of what the docket looks like. So how does it happen? So two people, two, I guess, both Orthodox Jews, because they're going to submit to the Beit Din, right? Not necessarily, no. There have actually been cases where non-Jews have showed up. Why would non-Jews um, submit themselves to a traditional Jewish law as a way of adjudicating disputes? Yeah, and maybe it goes back to our previous conversation. You know, you speak your values out loud, you create a first-rate um, process that's, you know, it's arbitration ultimately, and people like arbitration, some people like arbitration because... You're um, submitting voluntarily. Both parties submit a third party for finding resolution. And some people like the idea of submitting it to a rabbinical court that develops a certain kind of reputation. Don't get me wrong. 99% of the cases are two Orthodox Jews, but it's not always Orthodox Jews. Interesting. So there are cases of two Gentiles who will decide to have their dispute adjudicated by a Beit Din? I can't recall off the top of my head um, two Gentile, uh, two non-Jews showing up to a case, but I can recall cases of a non-Jew and a Jew. Interesting. So it's very much like regular secular arbitration where both litigants will present their case. And with what body of law will you decide? 
Yeah, so typically it's, I mean, if you look at the arbitration agreement, it says it's going to be decided under the rules of the Beth Din of America, which incorporate Jewish law. And um, the substantive law is also going to be Jewish law. So it's uh, religious authorities and religious law. It's part of like the larger network of religious arbitration. Like uh, um, you have uh, Islamic arbitration, you have Christian forms of arbitration in the United States. And I'd say the most prominent version of all that is um, Jewish arbitration or the Beit Din. What kind of disputes have, have come before you? You get everything. I mean, just just imagine any like normal court docket. I've seen cases like um, two people arguing over whether a, a designer did a good job designing a wedding dress. So how will you apply Jewish law to that kind of dispute? <laughs> well, luckily, most of the time, I don't have to be the one applying Jewish law because we have people who I think are far wiser and far more knowledgeable than I am. I usually am the one who gets the questions of like, how does arbitration doctrine work in this case? Can you help us sort through like questions of arbitrability and other you know, complicated legal issues? I'm like the uh, I'm the guy in the background kind of making sure to press the right legal button sometimes. Right. But how 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 theoretically would Jewish law, as distinguished from secular law, be applied to a dispute over a wedding dress? I mean, you know, there's an entire you know code of Jewish law. One quarter of it applies to commercial disputes. So there's quite a lot of um, Jewish law related to commercial disputes. Um, I'd also add that Jewish law often takes um, very seriously prevalent commercial practices. So a lot of the time what you'll see is commercial practices, um, the current kind of legal environment becoming legally relevant for the from the perspective of Jewish law, um, kind of through, uh, I wouldn't call it through the back door. Jewish law has long taken commercial practice, um, like aids of interpretation, when it's talking in terms of a legal framework, very seriously. And so a lot of the time what you end up getting is decisions that closely track um, what your expectations would be under American law, but through a Jewish law lens. Okay. So in, in your passage, how did, how did the rabbis go from speaking of Greek wisdom to when you're allowed to dress in a secular way. What's the connection there? If you really drill down as to what are the things about us that help form or convey our identity, I mean, I think they're all, they're all pieces of the puzzle. When I size somebody up, when I try to figure out what they stand for, um, the reality is kind of the way in which they, they act, they dress, they speak, all of those things are you know, parts of that identity. When you think about, you know, the Midrashim, about what the Jews did in Egypt to help maintain their identity, you know, back in the times of the Bible, you think about the way in which they kept their names, they kept their language. All of these are constitutive to who we are, how we pass on our identity to the next generation. So it's not surprising that when you look at a passage like this that starts with, you know, let's think a little bit about, you know, who can uh, use Greek wisdom, whether or not that's okay, and here you, it can be used under particular circumstances, the, the Talmud says, if you're close to the monarchy. Um, it's not surprising that it's the same kind of issue in terms of, you know, what kind of haircut do you get? What clothes do you wear? All of those things are seen as, you know, identity forming. Uh, and that strikes me as right. And I think everything we know now is all these things about how we present doesn't just convey something to the outside, but impacts us on the inside and dress up for an interview. All, all these things, you know, Nothing's changed, I would say. I think what, it sounds to me like like one of the things that we now acknowledge, but it seems like we acknowledged in the Talmudic passage as well, given the combination, is the notion of integrity. Because integrity comes, it means integrated. I think that's right. What they're saying is there's really no distinction between what you wear and what you study. It all makes you who you are. And that's what it means to have integrity. It 
It's you're integrated. Hence, you have integrity. If you're not integrated, you have no integrity. But Judaism is all about integrity. And I think Judaism is always about, you know, through every decision we make, ultimately making a decision. It's a value-based decision. That's right. It's all about, it's everything's integrated. So you can't go into the marketplace and make a non-value-based decision and remain a good Jew. That's right. Just going back to kind of our little conversation about the baked in, you know, I think about that a lot. Yeah. I think we're used to talking about religion in terms of ritual and prayer and things like that. that. Those are familiar to us as religious concepts, but we don't often think about our commercial lives as religious. That's such an important point. I mean, but if you look at Leviticus 25, Leviticus 25, it's in the middle of what may be considered boring labor law, how much interest you can charge. And then all of a sudden he says, and I am a Shem, your God. In other words, as a reminder, don't get bored by this. Don't think I'm not interested. In fact, I'm asserting my authority in the middle of labor law. And then after he says that, he goes back to the labor law. Right. I think that's 100 percent right. All these things thinking about, you know, how do we take our religious life from prayer and ritual and all those things and move it into you know, commercial practice, setting up institutions that hold us accountable um, for living lives of value when it comes to commerce. I think all of that is part of the kind of same picture that in everything we do, whether it's how you know, I was talking, I think about advocacy a lot and litigation and, you know, with my legal background. And I think about, you know, commerce because the work I do with the bait team, but all of these things, as you say, it's integrated. It's the same, it's the same principle. It's value-based decision-making. It's conveying a sense of value. It's uh, really trying to bring it within ourselves that everything we do is, is a value decision. It's an attempt to live, live a Jewish life of value through whether it's commerce, through whether it's law, through whether it's dress, through whether it's... It, it doesn't matter what it is. It's, it's either you, you live a Jewish... There's no notion of religion's what I do on Friday night and Saturday. Rabbi Sachs, who we just lost last week or the week before, I, I remember him quoting somebody as saying, it was not a Jewish authority, quite the opposite. Somebody is saying, religion is a private drama of the soul. And he said, that is not a Jewish position. He said, in fact, he was using that to show our position is the opposite. It's not a private drama of the soul. It's a public experience of the mind, the soul, and the body. It's everything. That's right. And you think back to what it must have been like to live through years of Jewish history where we were forced to bring it inside, where it isn't something that we could proudly say or wear or speak outside. How frustrating that must have been. And to think now that that's not the Jewish experience I'm familiar with. It's a, a new experience I want to protect for my children, my children's children the idea of pride um, in Jewish values and living life of Jewish values in all spheres. I think that's right. Exactly. And I think it was uh, Rabbi David Wolpe who pointed out that most of the Bible, in fact, almost all of it takes place outside. That's interesting. I'd never thought about that before. The Jewish experience literally is outside. I mean, think of what actually happens inside. There's the tabernacle, but not that much actually happens in the Torah. It's basically an outdoors experience. I like that point quite a lot, thinking about it in terms of outdoors. You know, Listen, we live in a society that's primarily Protestant, um, where the privatization of religion is dominant. Our mode of living is, that's not to say that you know, Protestants don't take pride in their faith and don't, don't express it loudly and, and publicly, but you know, there's a notion of you know, two spheres. And we don't, we don't have spheres in, in quite the same way. We operate, I think, far more fluidly in terms of our values than we're supposed to. You know, and the worry is, I guess maybe we can state it as a worry is that maybe, you know, with all the pressures that we face in terms of commerce and all the, you know, interests that we try to advance and all the things we try to work out and we look around and we try to be, you know, keep up with the Joneses, that all these pressures are going to make us um, turn Judaism to something smaller. 
something that isn't like that everywhere. And Judaism isn't, our Judaism isn't meant to be small. It's meant to be big. It's meant to be big and difficult. You know, the, the, the more one engages in Torah study, the, the more one realizes like, there's nothing you can put in a bumper sticker that's, re- that's remotely helpful. <laughs> well, m- maybe we can work that out by the time we're done today. That would be a fun project. But it, it, it's what Emmanuel Levinas said. It's a difficult freedom. Yes. That's I, when I said before that, you know, it's, it's not just an opportunity, but it's a responsibility. I think, that's, I think that's exactly what it is. It means that we've got to push ourselves hard. You know, I think about you know, the Beitian work we were chatting about before. Those are people in, in some of their most challenging moments. You can imagine either getting divorced or kind of a business transaction gone awry. Sometimes there are millions of dollars on the line. You know, can you think about your values at that moment? That's tough. That's really, really tough. People at that point just want to get through the day, just want it all to work out. Just they want what they want. And to say that, you know, we're gonna we're gonna build a communal infrastructure that's core purpose is to say your values must be your values at all times. Now, that's an ambitious project. Now, you say that's big. That's a big project. Absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion about this passage that, from the Talmud that I never would have considered or even known about otherwise. Now, the um, concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the uh, sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And in the book, he tells a story. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years, um, engaged in both scholarship as a public intellectual and in teaching young people the law through a Jewish lens, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? All right, two things. Well, the first is people lie. They lie all the time. As a lawyer, this is something you find out pretty quickly, that people just, they just don't tell the truth or their truth does not track reality. Why do people lie? Is it that they told one lie and then they have to keep lying in order to reinforce the first lie or is it something else? Some days I like to think if I'm being optimistic that they just want to remember their past in a different way and they want it so much that they make the world look different. So in, that's fascinating. In their mind, are they lying? They're telling an untruth, but are they lying or are they misremembering? And the answer is, you know, trying to figure out the line between those two is uh, for somebody uh, in a different discipline than I am. But it's, it's certainly a reminder of those things that um, people really want or try or force a different version of the past on you that that isn't exactly how things are. And maybe kind of as a second thing, I would only you know, link to that would say, people aren't as bad as they are on their worst day. This is something that I, I try to remember quite a lot. I deal with people sometimes in unfortunate moments and bad moments, either as somebody providing legal counsel or somebody saying dispute resolution or a variety of things. Or as a professor where the cancel culture is so prevalent, right? I mean, that's well, I teach at Pepperdine Crusoe School of Law, um, and we are quite proud that our faculty, you know, there's some studies of this, our faculty is the third most conservative law faculty in the United States because we are 50-50. So 50-50, you become the third out of how many? Um, all ABA-accredited law schools, I believe. So that's like 200-something, maybe. Right. Okay, so you don't have a cancel culture problem there. No, I, I don't feel it at all. I actually, you know, I would say, like, uh, our law school does a fantastic job on this front. I have students across the ideological spectrum, and 
I love holding class with them. It is absolutely great and holding class on challenging topics. I'm doing a talk this afternoon on like religious liberty during COVID. I've got my favorite, one of my favorite uh, colleagues, not from law school, from from different law school who who lives to my left. And we're going to hash it out and the students are going to come from all sides. It's going to be great. So I don't feel cancel culture in my professional life. That's wonderful. It's so sad that that has to be acknowledged as something special. If we're serious about what we said before, and this is maybe kind of links to the thing that we talked about um, at the outset, you know, when you live a life of values, you, you can't, that's not something you worry about. You don't worry about cancel culture. You worry about values. But you do worry about it if you can be canceled and your career could be ended, your life prospects could be diminished. Then you have to worry about it because you can't escape the culture you're in. You're probably right. But the answer should be to that. No. I live my life of values and I don't take that into account. And I press my values in all spheres and I'm honest and authentic at all times. Um, my Judaism is on my sleeve. I try to be thoughtful and honest and speak with my tradition at all times, irrespective of you know what that might mean. I mean, back in the day, you know, we we hit our values when it meant death, but you know, that's not what we're dealing with now. We can certainly bring more pride to the table, I think. Absolutely right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion. Mark, um, a real pleasure to hang out with you a little bit. This is such a cool project, and I'm looking forward to listening going forward. Oh, well, thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.